Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You really want to be pretty clear-eyed about like sort of what kind of arena you're dealing with, right? It's like people do die in the mountains. And I think if you're like, if you're not fully aware of that, I think it's like a friend dying in the mountains shocks you into being like, oh, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. It, it may be a, a good reminder to be like, okay, like, do I really understand what I'm doing here? Do I, am I really fully cognizant of like all the things I'm putting on the line to go do this thing that is ultimately pointless? Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Thomas Bukowski. I first stumbled across Thomas when we were on the hunt for stories to tell for Pertex, one of our outdoor brand clients. We worked really closely with photographer Ted Hesser to find and then shoot a story based in the US and Thomas was the subject of that story. You can find a link to that work and a set of photos and an article about Thomas on Pertex.com. Thomas does a brilliant job of introducing himself, but to quickly outline who he is, he's predominantly a rock climber and alpinist. He currently lives in his van full-time, but at the time of recording was down in Patagonia on a climbing trip. He grew up in Hong Kong, and in this episode he tells me about how his life has been shaped and changed by not being from the place he now calls home, as well as by being a gay man. We dig into the philosophy of all I've just mentioned fairly seriously, and despite the sketchy connection and background noise from the cafe he's in, it's a great chat. Okay, over to Thomas Bukowski. So, logical place to start as ever is just, if you could introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you and and where you're from, I guess. Yeah, um, I'm Thomas Bukowski. I'm, uh, I think, a climber, like so many others before me on this podcast. And uh, where am I from is kind of a tricky one. I grew up in, I think I tend to say to people, I grew up in Hong Kong. I used to live in San Francisco in the U.S. is what I what I tend to say, even though I don't live there anymore now. So, but I mostly, I guess, I'm in a van. So, like so many other climbers as well. So that's that's uh, that's what I do. And. Your childhood in Hong Kong, that is obviously it's a huge part of who you are, I guess, is it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's hard to escape one's childhood. I think it's, it was kind of funny. It's a funny place to grow up. You know, it's such a, I always tell, for Americans, I always try to explain to them that I basically grew up in Manhattan. And like, you know, there's, I didn't even learn how to drive until I was in my 20s um, when I was in the US and trying to figure out how to get to Yosemite as much as possible. And um yeah, and it, it wasn't a place that's really that conducive to like learning how to climb or, 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 or even really being in the outdoors that much. Like, there's actually pretty good hiking in, in Hong Kong. It's apparently this phenomenal trail running, but like, it's not really a place that's you know, it's not like growing up in a ski town or growing up as 
children and mountain guides or something like that. It's a, it's like the outdoors is not a super easy place to get to or to kind of become familiar with. And so how do you go from growing up in Hong Kong to living in the US? Yeah, it's a funny story there. Um, when I was about 15, um, my mom read about this these, ne- these network of schools that got United World Colleges um, in the newspaper. And she was like, you should apply. So I ended up applying and they have sort of, they have basically this two-year program that tries to bring together as many folks from as many different cultures as possible um, in so many words. And um, it's also fully, everyone's on scholarship. And so my mom should apply. And when I got in, I was kind of like, oh, I should probably go. And I ended up, um, I think they had maybe eight options, ended up picking to go to school in Norway. And um, when I was in Norway, I was, I got pretty close with the physics teacher who turned out to be Chris Hamper, who I think was one of the strongest climbers in Britain in like the 80s. At least that's the impression I've managed to gather. I've obviously not managed to get anything out of him at all in terms of like his climbing history. Um, But, um, (laughs) and so that's where I really started climbing. And that's where I really started, I think, spending, even just spending time in the outdoors, like just roaming around in the hills and like taking photos and kind of just doing, you know, going on like random hikes, even things like that. That's really where I started doing any of this stuff. And I mean, Chris was a, Chris was a great mentor, right? He was very kind of, I want to say he's very British, but I'm actually not entirely sure. Maybe he's just his own person, but um, yeah, his, his climbing instruction often was like, well, just, just go up. Or like, you'll be like, you know, if you don't move your feet up, it's hard to climb much further than two meters off the ground. Like that was mostly how he, they, it was, you know, it was very kind of like, all right, you figure it out. <laughs> it must have been, uh, how old were you when you went over to Norway? Uh, this was, I guess I was 16 and 17, roughly, basically. Just the last two years of secondary school, high school. And had you traveled much before that? Um, a little bit, you know. Um, my mom was also a, a, a school teacher, so, so sort of our, like, holidays, you know, we had the summer holidays, and, and so we would um, travel a little bit. We didn't travel, but not, not a ton, it was really my first, I mean, so it's definitely my first time, like, living out of Hong, outside of Hong Kong. But that must have been quite a significant, like, culture shock, I guess, was it? Um, yes and no. I think, I mean, it definitely was a big change, of course. And I think it also was, you know, it's always a big change when you get out of your parents' house and just kind of live on your own. And it's, you know, I think, you know, a lot of folks have that experience, you know, in university or college. But so I got that a little earlier. But in some ways, it was honestly a bigger cultural shock coming to the U.S. Because I think, like, you know, the school in Norway was very kind of, there's folks from all over the world. So everyone was kind of, no one fit in, right? Everyone was different. Everyone was from a different place. And so there was a much more, there was a very open kind of, like, culture um, with, the, with the school and just, you know, just everyone there. So that, that made it pretty easy, I think, in that way to, to, to sort of not feel as much like an outcast. But the U.S. is just, like, there's so, and the climate community, at least in the U.S., and maybe in many places, honestly, right? It's just like folks are like from the U.S. and and they're you know and they're like have all they, you know they all grew up with the same TV shows and they they have the sort of commonality of experience I think that 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 I just didn't have right and I think it's it's you know it's I think that that in a way is just a very if you move to any new country I think you would have that kind of experience and it, it's I, I think as I've like tried to to take apart parts of my life and understand where like why certain things are difficult and try to sort of break it down a little bit. I feel like a large part is just, hey, if you move to a country that you don't know anyone at all and you, you know, it's a whole big country with a whole own culture and its whole own world, like it's just going to be kind of rough, you know? It's not going to be that easy. Yeah. I mean, and then it almost sounds like a stupid question given what you're saying, but 
how was it for you? Moving to the US? Um, I mean, it was def- I, I would say it was, it's more rough, it was more rough moving to the US than moving to Norway. Um, part, you know, I, I, I ended up doing about two years of, of college in the US, but I think it was, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the US, America's home now, right? Um, but it, it just took a long time for me to feel, to, to get to, I think, to get established and, and then just feel comfortable here and feel, um, it just, you can just make friends, like figure out climbing, learn how to drive so it can go climbing. Like there's just a lot of steps I felt like, I, I felt it was a lot of steps to get there. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to move back to Hong Kong, so I was kind of like, okay, cool, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to like roll forwards. So that's, that's kind of, you know, um, but, but yeah, it definitely, was, it definitely wasn't an easy thing to do. And is that, I mean, we maybe get into the heaviest stuff here, I'm not sure, but sure. is that journey over and, and do you feel like you've taken all of those steps now? Um, I think to a certain extent, I feel a little more settled now. I think, um, it's funny, I think life comes in these waves, right? Or, or one of my really good friends likes to say that life comes in seasons, you know? And I think for, I think for a good 10 years, I think things were pretty good. I like lived in San Francisco and, you know, ha- had a home and had a really great community. I was, I serendipitously lived two blocks from the climbing gym. So I was there all the time. And like, you know, I, I was sort of, I had a, a, a sort of a pretty normal white collar job. Like it was kind of, things were sort of very, very straightforward. And, and also San Francisco is a great place to, you know, it's a great place to be gay or queer. So that was, that made things very straightforward. I think now I'm kind of in a period of flux again a little bit, right? Like I'm decided to move away from SF. Like I'm living in the van, which is great for a lot of things, but also not so great for community and not so great for, for a sense of stability and, and, and roots. And so I think I'm I'm in a place now where I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find a, a, a sort of a new place to like settle down a little bit and build a bit of a home and build a bit of a community. And like, I mean, we've had endless discussions, you know, like with your friends and, and new friends down here in Nashville. We've had endless discussions about, oh, you know, like, is it better to move to Bend, Oregon? Or is it better to move to Salt Lake City or Denver or like Boulder or Seattle? You know, we just, everyone's sort of, we talk about this endlessly, but I think, it's, it, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'm not, still not quite sure. Like right now, Salt Lake, it seems, feels quite, quite um, like maybe the, the, the top of the list, but it's also just like maybe back in my head, I can't help but think like, oh, maybe I should move to a different country now. Maybe it's time to do it all over again. So, so maybe I'm in for another, another round of this, right? But I think it's, it's like, it was tricky to give up that kind of stability that I had in San Francisco, but also... So you know when sometimes you know when life is kind of pushing you along and you're like, all right, let's let's just go with it then. Right, rather than trying to to, to hold on and and have um hold on to what you already know, hold on what you are comfortable with, even when you're like in the back of the head you kind of know that, yeah, I probably I think I'm actually done. I just don't wanna leave the you know, all the comforts I've built up. Yeah, I mean it mm. it's a <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing to ask ten minutes into a conversation, but No no given everything you've just said, like, what, what, what is it you're looking for? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not, it's, I think in some ways I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think being, this this whole notion of being a third culture kid, which, you know, I, I'm not quite that, but um, I think having lived in a bunch of different places and I think having, like, very much, like, eviscerated myself from my, like, home culture and my parents and, and, and you know, with the place I grew up and, and things like that, it's hard to know, like, I don't have any family in the U.S., you know, and so I kind of, I don't really want to go back to the place that I have family, 
you know, for lots of different reasons. And so it's kind of like, well, what, what, what grounds you then? Like, what's, what is important, you know? And I think it's easy to reach to, like, very simple, very simple explanations or very simple answers. Like, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a job or I'll get in a relationship. And these things will be the places that, that will give me a reason to be somewhere. Or, you know, I really like the climbing in this particular place. Um, and every now and then, I definitely am like, you know, I'm a little bit like, oh, maybe I'll move to Al Shaltan. It's like really nice here. Like, it's kind of an amazing place. You know, I think I get those flights of fancy, I think, all the time. But I, it's, it's, you have to kind of just, I don't know. I, my sense is that I have to just go out there and just try to be in different places and see where it feels, where it feels right. And in a way, like, leave it up to chance, right? Like, have, in a way, it's almost like wait for those experiences where you're like, oh, wow, this was really amazing. And this, had this really amazing experience, a really amazing evening, or this really amazing couple of weeks, and have that be be a way to sort of let those emotional kind of resonances, those emotional experiences, sort of convince you almost to stay somewhere, right? I think it's, yeah, it's just so, it's, I mean, on one hand, I'm, I'm so grateful, and it's amazing how much freedom and flexibility I have in my life, but kind of, I think, like, the, the, the other side of the moon, so to speak, is, is of that phenomenon, is, like, I also just don't have a place that is home. I don't have a... It, and in some ways, almost don't have reasons for places to be home. So it's kind of like, okay, how do you make... How do you decide where to be then when you can't be anywhere, but then also don't really have to be anywhere at all? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like there's this societal pressure, I think, particularly in the West, although maybe actually globally, to you know, we judge people or we look at people based on what they're achieving. And often we gauge right. that by how successful is their relationship? Are they married? Have they got children? How, right. how long have they been in their job? Have they progressed up a certain ladder? And actually, you know, maybe we don't have to live like that. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody. Or maybe actually, is there anything wrong with living slightly more impulsively and going where the wind takes us? Right. Yeah, I. it's funny, right? I think like being gay, you... People love to say, oh, but you can still have kids. And I'm just like, yes, but it's, it's really a very different, it's a wholly different matter and, and um, kind of exercise than I think having kids if you, if you were straight, right? It's just way more work. Um, and I think once, and then also I think it, but more than sort of the mechanics of it, if you will, like it places you out of this, that, sh- that sort of like societal stream of, of um, oh, having kids and getting married and, I mean, I, I, I love saying to people, it's like so much about our society is, is organized around child rearing, right? It's like everyone's jobs sort of finish at like 5 p.m. because that's when the daycare closes and then someone's got to go pick up the kids in the daycare. You know, it's kind of like it's all organized in that way. And that's great. I mean, like that's, that's how our species continues, you know, among other things. But like, you know, it's also when you get placed out of that, I think you, you do are, again, it's this thing where you have a lot of flexibility and, and but on the flip side, you're, you're kind of like, well, what do I do then? And this is something that's, I mean, this is sort of, this is a, uh, it's more than a common experience. It's like a foundational experience, I think, for, for a lot of gay people and queer people I know, right? Is that, you know, I think their, you know, sort of their sexuality places them outside of the, the, the norm of society. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool. So wait, what do I, what should I do now? Like, what is it, what does it mean for my life if I'm not going to sort of do, if it doesn't, 
if I can't do what everyone, what quote unquote everyone else is doing. Um, and so th there's like, you know, there's a bit of a theme there, if you will, right? Like I think by not being, by not, by being so far away from my parents, by not being in my home culture, by being just sort of like, being like, I'm just going to move to America by myself kind of thing. I've sort of, I've gotten this, uh, like I said, on one hand, a great, an amazing opportunity to like just sort of do whatever I want and, and sort of explore whatever I want. But I also, but that freedom from structure is just like being gay. The freedom from structure is this kind of thing where you're like, oh no, like, well, so it, it, you really have to sit down and be like, what do I want and what do I want to do? And those aren't easy. Those are, those aren't easy questions to answer, but they're also not easy questions to have the same answer, I think, over years and decades. Yeah, I totally agree. And, do, you know, when you look back on that decision to move to America and doing it, mm -hmm. whether it seemed it at the time or whether it's with hindsight, does it feel or did it feel brave? It didn't feel brave. It felt like, uh, um, I mean, I think a, a sort of, maybe to add a little bit more context to it, I like, I was, I was essentially wasn't doing very great in school. I wasn't doing very great academically, but I definitely wasn't doing very great socially either. I just was kind of miserable. And I was in this place where I was like, um, well, actually, sorry, let me rewind, rewind real fast. I think going to, coming to the U.S. was, was kind of like, uh, that was more almost automatic in the sense that I, um, you know, I was 17 and I was applying to colleges. And I was kind of like, well, I guess, I guess the easiest ones immigration-wise are the U.S. and the U.K. And, but I kind of wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to study, like so many other 17-year-olds. So the whole notion of liberal arts was more appealing. So I was like, let's go to the U.S. then, because the U.K. is like apply for a particular, you know, concentration of major, and it just seemed kind of daunting. So that's how I ended up in the U.S. But I think the, the sort of the, the, the journey, so to speak, really started when I was like, okay, I'm not, because I think in school, you're still like in a structure and like, you know, they try really hard to, to have you do well at school. And like, you know, there's lots of, most places anyway, try to have like some support for, for you know, how, sort of how you are socially and how you're academically and things like that. Um, but once I decided to be like, maybe I should just take a break, was how I said to myself from the school thing, because it's just not going well. Like, I just need to figure out, I just need to figure out something, don't know what it is, but I need to figure out, you know, sort of myself a little bit. I think that was when I was kind of like, okay, like, I, yeah, it was, it was, um, it didn't, I think it didn't, I, I guess I, did, I wasn't like, I'm being brave at the time, right? I was more kind of like, all right, I just gotta, you know, um, I just gotta figure this out. You know, it's like any other, it's kind of like any other issue. And it just, what I had to figure out just ended up being, you know, I need to figure out like, well, where do I live? And how do I get a job? And like, where, which city do I want to move to in this country, this giant country that I know nothing about and so on and so forth. But it's, it's really not that different from, um, in the moment, I think it doesn't feel any different than, than any other, any other problem you have in life, right? Yeah, I guess there's just lots of different types of people in the world. And, you know, we've only known each other for 20 minutes so far, but um, <laughs> <laughs> judging by the things you've said and, you know, deciding to move into the van and maybe I should move to El Chaltén, like you seem just, you know, like you have the confidence and the ability to just say, I'm going to do this now. And then you do it rather than think about it for years. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I definitely thought I, def I definitely think about these things a, a bunch for sure. But it's it's um, I, I feel like I, I I definitely try to think about them. I try to kind of give them a little time to marinate in my head. But I guess I've always had the sense where you know you think about something, you're pondering something, you know, and at some point you're kind of like I don't think there's anything else left to think about. Like you know I've kind of like 
done a bunch of research, thought about a bunch of like more practical or, you know, things. And then you're kind of maybe gives yourself some time to, to sit with the feelings of it. But after like, you know, a couple days, a couple weeks, you're kind of like, well, cool. That was, it's like, are you going to do it or not? And there's been plenty of things in my life where I'm like, oh, you know, this would be really cool. There was maybe like, it's almost 10 years ago now, but like I like finished, I just quit a job. You know, I was kind of like, okay, I'm done with that one. I was just sort of, just sort of, and, and, and I just got out of a long relationship and I was just in this moment where I was like, maybe I'll move to Barcelona. I don't know even really why, but it was, that was just what popped in my head, you know, as breakups tend to do, right? You're like, start to have some wacky ideas. And I sat on it for a couple of days and weeks and I, I remember thinking like, actually, yeah, I could totally do that. That would be kind of cool, you know? And, but I just never ended up doing it. I kind of just thought about it and just let it float by. And um, yeah, I feel, I feel like a lot of times it's just like, hey, you think about, but you, you, you can only think about something so much. And like, you're, you're either, if you're gonna do it, you just go and do it. And if you're not gonna do it, then, then that's okay too, right? Just, and then just, just let it go and be like, well, that was a fun little thought exercise. Um, yeah, I guess I've had to make some big moves. I feel like I've had to make some big moves in my life than necessarily like, I was like, I'm gonna choose to do all these things. Um, but uh, I guess that that's, that's how it most, most of them have felt to me that it's like, I've, there's, there's been a little bit of push as well as like, you know, just sort of like fanciful thinking. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, yeah. you said you had a, um, a white collar job and now you live in the van and you don't do that anymore. What was it you were doing and what is it you do now professionally? Yeah, so I, um, I, I think I was lucky in, in a sort of this, I was lucky in this pretty fundamental way where um, when I was actually, so when I was eight years old, my mom switched schools she was teaching at and she switched to this, this school that was all about being very progressive and very sort of up with the times. And so sort of the principal at the school was like, okay, everyone, all the teachers have to like um, put the exams or students together in Microsoft Word. You can't do the thing where you photocopy bits of the exam from the, that's how you used to do it, right? This back, at, I mean, this is almost 25 years ago or whatever. You photocopy bits of like questions from like the teacher's handbook and then, you know, th that the students haven't seen before. And that's how you would put together the, um, the uh, 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 exam for the, for, the, for the students. And so they're like, you have to do it on Word. And so my mom was like, okay, I guess I need to get a computer. So she, she went out and bought, and it was like, I mean, it was like a month's wages or something. It was like very, it was very expensive. Um, I mean, I guess it still kind of is. Very expensive to buy computers. And um, uh, my, my joke was always that I started, I used, I used to, I just played with Legos until we got the computer and then I started playing on the computer. So I started programming when I was probably 10 or 11. And um, so when I took a break or what essentially dropped out of school, I, so it's very natural for, to, to be like, okay, well, this, this feels like a marketable skill slash maybe my only marketable skill. <laughs> so I was kind of like, I should go, I should get a programming job, I guess. And um, it's funny, I always explain to people, like, when I, you know, I was going to school on the East Coast in the U.S. And, and when I, when I um, was trying to decide where to go, when I was going to say I was going to take a break, quote, unquote, I kind of looked around and I, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to move to San Francisco because I've heard that they do, like, programming computer stuff there. I can do that, I think. And I've heard there's gay people there. And that was my, like, that was my, <laughs> I, I remember that I was like, yep, that sounds good enough to me. Okay, great. Where's San Francisco? Let's find, figure out, that, you know, let's, let's find out where it is to move there. Um, but yeah, so I ended up working in, in, in tech, like so many other folks, um, for, for about five or six years, mostly sort of small companies and startups and things like that. Um, that was 
since that was kind of the environment that worked worked best for me. And then I kind of, like the aforementioned, almost moved to Barcelona, quit a job, got out of a relationship, and then ended up sort of pivoting a little bit to working in, in global health for about five years. And then and then I moved into the van, and I've, now I've, kind of, I've been doing a combination of living on savings, which is not going to last so long, and uh, sort of starting to get, explore the guiding world a little bit, which has been been actually really fun and amazing. So hard to know if that will really be able to be a career, but it's it's at least supplementing things a little bit right now in terms of work and finances. Why is that? Why why is it hard to know if it will be a career? Um, <laughs> I think it's I think very simply I think guiding is it's hard to make a living guiding right? Um, it's, it's a kind of manual labor. You're working with your body day in and day out. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot of risk, right? Um, in terms of just, you know, being a guide is all about managing, mitigating and minimizing risk, but it's like, you're also out in the mountains every day. You're climbing with people that have mostly never climbed before or very inexperienced, right? And so it's something that like, you know, I could imagine doing it for, for five or maybe even 10 years, but like, I just feel like a lot of guides I know eventually, transitions to different careers or different ways of making a living. It's just, it seems like it's, it, it's not, you can sit in an office and, and, and go to meetings and, and, you know, write documents or whatever it is in your 50s, but I don't know anyone who's in their 50s and really guiding full time. It seems like it just really breaks down your body. So I think in that way, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not, I think if I was 21 and, you know, really, you know, and sort of just really excited and into, again, to guiding, I think like that, you know, there's sort of more earning potential there almost, right? Um, just because you have a younger body. But my sense is that, like, it's, I can't really, yeah, I can't really, um, I can do it for a little bit, but I'm not sure if I can do it for that long. <laughs> I don't know if I can take it, basically. My body can take it. That's a really interesting perspective. I suppose I hadn't really thought, I, you know, I like the line, guiding is manual labor. I never really thought about it like that. Yeah, you're carrying stuff yeah. around all the time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I carry heavy bags up and downhill for a living and I'm noticing it at 33, so we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> so I think it might be it might be good, actually, to just give us a little bit of context about where you are right now and what you've been doing and, and why you're there. Yeah, um, I'm in southern uh, Argentina, in uh, in Ajotan, you know, the, the famous uh, Fitzroy... I'm looking at the famous Fitzroy skyline right now. You know, the Patagonia logo, I guess. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's a funny place. You know, it's it's incredibly famous for a good reason. It's it is an in- incredibly beautiful place um, because I mean the, the you know the the like I'm looking at the peak. I'm at I think the hands at like twelve hundred feet or so, um, and the top of Fitzroy is like eleven thousand feet. Like, and I can see it right now. Like, and there's just very few places in the world where. I think you have that kind of dramatic, you have so much sort of um, elevation change and so much prominence in the mountains. And it's, you know, it's all really good climbing and it's just, it's it's an amazing place. It's a, also a very tricky place to be. I think the, the weather is, it's um, it's funny, like a sort of, the guy Rolo who wrote the guidebook for this place and has been down here for 30 years, he's um, outside his house, he has a little sign that says, world's worst weather. <laughs> and basically, I mean, it's a, it's just a place where most of the time it's, and beyond cold and rain, the temperature and rain, it's just too windy. And it's just too windy to climb. And like, yeah, maybe you can climb up when it's really windy, but like you certainly can't repel safely. You just eventually end up with no rope right when it's too windy. 
I think the other side of it is that it's also, it's really amazing climbing. It's like all the skills of like going up anything, right? Lots of hiking, lots of glacier, lots of snow and ice stuff, but also lots of rock climbing, like uh, capsized rock climbs all over the place kind of thing. Um, so on one hand, it's very tricky. The weather can be very frustrating and so it's just a psychologically a very difficult thing to deal with, like sort of trying to forecast and guess and like pick objectives based on the weather. But on the flip side, this is also like, I feel like this is a place I've been training for my whole life without realizing it, right? It's, it's like that good. <laughs> so it's a place that's very, um, it's very complex, right? It's not like going to a sport climbing trip in, in Greece, which is amazing because you're just like, every day is perfect and this is really fun and I have a bunch of friends around and I just, this is just like an amazing vacation even, right? Versus this is more, you're kind of wrestling with something more elemental, both physically, both literally and also metaphorically. And what is it about that that draws you in? Um, I think I like that it's very difficult. Um, I like that it's like challenging and, and but even like mentally and psychologically challenging, right? Rather than more than just, of course, like physically challenging. But I think for me, climbing has always been this thing where it's like, I find myself looking around or anywhere I am, I find myself looking around and I find myself looking at something that's a little higher up and being like, I wonder what's on top of that. It's really kind of as simple as that. Like, and it's not necessarily that I'm like, I mean, there's lots of things I enjoy about climbing now, of course, the, you know, the, the community of it, the, you know, the aesthetics and, of the movement and all that kind of stuff. But like, in the most simple way, I often will be like, I just want to see what's on top of something. I just, want, I just want to see what it's like up there. And so there's some really great spots here to go up there and see what it's like, <laughs> right? There's just some, you're like, wow, this is like, I can't believe you can even go up there at all. I wonder if I can, let's find out. That's mostly, been, that's mostly my motivation. It's very, it's almost childish a little bit. <laughs> no, I think that's, no, no, no. I think, <clears throat> not to get too philosophical, but there's not much that separates us from animals. I think the fact that we know we're going to die is one thing. And then I think art and adventure, and that's about it. You know, I don't know right. that many animals look at the horizon and romanticize what might be there. Right. Romanticize about um, building a ship and, and, and sailing yeah. to the horizon. Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, how's the trip been then? It's been good. I mean, it's my first trip down here. And I think people, um, people like to talk about coming down here. They're like, this is your freshman year, right? So you're just, you're, you have no idea what's going on, basically. You can come with, like, you can be really excited and you can be really um, afraid. You can be all sorts of emotions, but really you have no idea how you're going to handle the place, how you're going to slot in and, and, and manage the, the place. And so it's my freshman year. So I really don't, I don't know. But I think after it's been like, just over a month, I think. Um, I feel like I definitely want to come back. I definitely have learned a lot. I've definitely spent more time staring at like weather models and weather forecasts in the last month than I have like ever in my life. Um, managed to get some climbing in, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, you know, got a taste of what it's like out there. And I also had a friend, unfortunately, pass away um, about two weeks ago in the mountains. And that was, you know, it's death and alpinism. I mean, like, you know, you, uh, you know, it's, you always knew it was going to happen. At least in my head, I'd, I'd always prepared that. I was like, well, you know, the more I get into really what you would call capital A alphabetism, the more likely that a friend is going to die, the more likely that I'm going to die. But, you know, it's still, it's just still a very rough experience. And um, yeah, it's still something that's like really, it's really hard to talk about. It can be really hard to talk about emotionally, but I think now having had a little time from it, I think it's really hard to talk about just it's just hard to verbalize. It's like, how do you talk about that stuff? It's like, oh God, it's like, yeah, was it worth it? Was it a good idea? Was it not? It's like, you know, I think for what it's worth, this, this accident was 
you know, it wasn't that, you know, they were doing something dangerous or wrong. It was just pure bad luck. It was pure just like, you know, it was just rockfall, which is just had rockfall just happened. So, so um, that's also been been that's obviously that's been a big big part of the trip, and and I think I still want to come back, and I think I still I'm still excited about alpinism and climbing, um, despite you know kind of in a way coming like really face to face with like some pretty the most serious consequence of it of all really. Yeah, and I'm conscious of not. Um, pressuring, you into, pressuring you into dwelling on it too much, but you know, you say it's hard to verbalize, and I understand the experience um, in my own way. But how do you feel now, and how has it changed you, if it has? I think <laughs> I think about it as I think about it as as a burden, really. And what I mean by that is like I think you know when you first start climbing, when you first start doing some kind of you know, something. You know, skiing something is really fun it's like you you kind of it's all you have all the sort of unbridled joy of doing something new and and doing something novel and and it's really free and you have these amazing moments and that's what keeps us coming back to these sports and these these activities um but i feel like at least with sort of more risky endeavors like like climbing i think over time you kind of build up all these little stories of your own close cause your friends close cause and things like that and um perhaps inevitably, you know, also, also death. And so in a way, every year or every passing sort of season, it, it gets a little heavier and it, it is, and it, it's something that in a way I feel like I, I can, I feel like I carry, right? Like when I go climbing now, and I'm sure when I go climbing tomorrow, it's going to feel a little, it's going to feel a little less of that kind of bright, unbridled, unmitigated joy that, you know, I had when I first started climbing. But I think that's okay. I think that's part of. I think that's part of life, right? Life is, you know, our, our, our common, all of our common destinations are, are, are death, right? We all, we all die eventually. Um, and of course, it's a tragedy to die, you know, young in you know, the prime of your life in the mountains. But um, I, I think I, that's how I look at it. And we're all trying to be as safe as possible. We all trying to mitigate as much risk as possible. We also all want to do these things. And I think. I'm, I guess I'm still perhaps at a place where I'm like, I feel like maybe the burden is not so heavy that I don't want to climb or that I, you know, but it's something still that I can, I can tell that I'm carrying it with me. I can tell that it's like, you know, when I look, when I get to the top of some peak and I look out on the vista, it's just a little less kind of like, everything is amazing as it was before. It's still really amazing, right? It's still like 95% amazing, but there's a little bit more of a voice in the back of the head now. Um... You might disagree with this, and you're very, very welcome to. But I, I don't know. I, maybe it makes it a little more true, though. It might make it. It might diminish it in terms of how beautiful it all seems and how wonderful. But it does. It's more true and honest. Yeah, I think I've long since felt that. You know, you're not. You know, you're out there like really. You know, fighting against some pretty fundamental, elemental things, right? You're like, none of these rocks are really. It's all like a happenstance that all these rocks happen to balance in this way that you can stand on top of it. And it's all happenstance that, you know, the weather isn't terrible and that we have all this, all these fabrics and jackets and things and objects to, to make it safer and, and more comfortable. Like, I, I think, I guess it's, it's always felt pretty, like it's always felt pretty real, I guess, so to speak, right? Like I think like being in the mountains always felt pretty real. And, um, you know, I think we're hardwired to 
for something like death to feel very intense and intensity always I think you know makes things feel a little more real but but um I, I definitely don't disagree with you I think you're it but it's I guess it reminds me of I, I used to dabble with motorcycles and I remember I had a colleague who said and he had been riding for 20 or 30 years and he was like if you get into an accident on your motorcycle and then you stop riding you shouldn't have been riding in the first place and I think it, to a certain extent it applies to this situation where it's like if you you really want to be pretty clear-eyed about like sort of what kind of arena you're dealing with, right? It's like people do die in the mountains and if you don't, and there's lots of climbing, you know, quick disclaimer, there's lots of climbing that's very safe, right? But I think, you know, something, a place like Patagonia, like all the great ranges in the world, people die all the time. And I think if you're like, if you're not fully aware of that, I think it's like, and you know, a die, so a friend, a friend dying in the mountains shocks you into being like, oh, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. Like, it may be a, a good reminder to be like, okay, like, do I really understand what I'm doing here? Do I, am I really fully cognizant of like all the things I'm putting on the line to go do this thing that is ultimately pointless <laughs> and, f- and purely for my own ego, right? Even if it's my own satisfaction and not necessarily ego from an Instagram perspective. It's like, do I really understand what I'm putting on the line here? Yeah, I, th- I think I tried really hard to, to, to think of that, which is why I'm like, hey, this wasn't unexpected, but... Nonetheless, it still, you know, it still feels pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a great way to look at it. I think, in, yeah. you know, you're not denying the intensity, are you? But equally, you're not denying something that you want to do. Yeah, um, it's a yeah, contradiction it's hard even. to argue with. Yeah, but such is life. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny, like I said to you before we started, you know, I don't have a big list of questions here. Yeah. Um, but I'm conscious of time and there's something I really would love to talk to you about is... Um, naturally and probably expectedly kind of diversity and inclusivity mm-hmm. just because you you did that article for us recently with the photos with Ted and I think I've actually got the line here somewhere um, you said uh, you cannot be what you cannot see right and I just wondered if you would talk to me a little bit about in fact I'm going to phrase it really bluntly deliberately mm-hmm. to see what you think yeah because um, I think it helps people but like do you think the outdoors and the outdoor community is inclusive that's a, <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I think to, to a certain extent, it, there's, there's, I'll put it this way, there's a couple of things that are really, this, um, the outdoors has, really has going for it in terms of diversity, right? I think on one hand, truly almost anyone can go outdoors, right? In, in a way, you just have to step outside your house, so to speak. Um, and that's great. I think there's a lot of things that are not uh, quite as accessible in that way. I think the biggest thing with the outdoors is that it's basically a thing that's very expensive. Or maybe another way to put it is that it's a place I think that takes a lot of privilege to do, right? You need like free time and like disposable income to buy gear. Like even if you're just gonna go for a run, right? And also I think you need a sense of um, 
you need a, you need this like psychological safety to be able to go out and like to be able to put yourself in a, a mindset of like I'm gonna go out and play. You know, I think for a lot of folks, like you know, beyond I think access and, and, and income and things like that, it's like the idea of like, oh, I'm gonna take an afternoon and just go on a fun bike ride or go on a go climb with my friends for a couple of hours. Like that is something that's a lot of people can't afford or or they can't conceive of, I think. And so all that to say, I think like and that in a way tilts the the playing field for for diversity as it is because I think beyond like who who is highlighted in the climbing media and the outdoor in the media of the outdoors or or like you know who is sponsored and all, all this kind of stuff that I think we like to talk about a lot I think like very fundamentally it's it's play we're playing outdoors in like the most elaborate and expensive way possible right um, and that naturally is something that is not going to be that inclusive and that's not anyone's fault that's just kind of that's just what we all end up doing, right? And so when we talk about, I think, inclusion and diversity in outdoors, I think that's like, that's for me the most fundamental thing we're working against is that it's something that is not easy for a lot of people to do in so many senses of the word easy. I I am amazed <laughs> in, a, in this such a positive way because I completely agree with everything you just said. And naturally, you know, I asked the question, you're Asian you know, you're a gay man and it's so, you know, I'm kind of expecting you to talk about inclusivity and um, feeling welcome from those perspectives, but instead you start talking about um, kind of the economic disadvantages that people face and whether or not it's accessible kind of almost geographically and financially. And I think that's something that, you know, obviously sexuality and ethnicity is a huge part of... um, uh, you know, it's white, white bearded middle class dudes who <laughs> tend to go outdoors. And obviously, I'm being a little over the top deliberately, but the middle class bit is often really overlooked. I think. I think that particularly in the climbing world, we think you know it's just dirt bags, but eh, I'm not quite sure that's the case. Yeah, I think the dirt bag thing is fascinating, right? Because I think a lot of people sometimes when I bring up this economic sort of this point about economics or about sort of like. Sort of access. I think folks are like, well, there's lots of people that are like dirt poor, like dumpster diving, like ten dollars to their name, you know. But they are climbing every day. Like, so what do you what do you mean by economics? And I think like there are some folks that that are, I think they they love their sport of climbing so much that they just do it and they do it with no safety net, no, you know, parents home to go back to, no savings, and you know, they're they're just and and that is that's brave in its own way, right? That's like really a commitment to something that is, that like really has no, you know, you're never really be able to make a living from it, but you're just going to spend your whole life doing it and just like deal with everything else. Like that's pretty amazing. But most people, like most dirtbags, right? They like, they're like, oh, well, you know, if things don't work out, they just drive a couple hours back home to their parents. And that's also amazing, right? That, but that's what I mean by the sense of psychological safety to be able to go out and play, right? Like that's, like that's what that gives you. If you you know, if you have, if you can, you can go live in your car and, and and have your car break down and have no food and no savings and all this kind of stuff. If you can just pick up your phone and call your mom and be like, hey, can I come stay with you for a week or two? You know, and they'll feed you and clothe you and whatever. You know, and they're and they're close by. You know, they're they're a couple hours away or even you know a quick flight away. So I feel like that's one of the biggest things that's holding back. You know, more diverse folks in the outdoors is that the idea of going out there is just seems crazy. They're like, I'm barely surviving, you know, doing whatever I'm doing, working my jobs or going to school or, or you know, 
sort of managing the things that I'm managing, the idea of like, oh, I'm going to go out there and take on more risk and go out there and like go up on the side of a cliff, that seems crazy if you're not, if you don't have enough safety in your existence as it is, right? Yeah, and yeah, totally agree. And also it's the, the economic side of it is you really need a car to be able to go rock climbing. Right. Whether you're in Britain or the US or anywhere. And or and then people say, well, no, because there's climbing gyms. It's like, yeah, have you been to one? You know how expensive they are just to get into for one session? Right. You know, it's it's a huge barrier. Yeah, and, and what what's what are, what's in the climbing gyms? There's posters of boulders and rock climbs and mountain ranges all over the world. And you climb in the climbing gym for a little bit and you're like, oh, I want to I wanna go to these, look at these cool posters of people doing stuff. I want to go do that too. And then you're like, oh God, I need a car now. Oh God, I need like, I need to be able to take two weeks off of work to go sit and sit somewhere where there's just bad weather and it's just raining. I don't get a climb. Like, you know, it's just like the whole thing is kind of crazy, right? <laughs> um, when you, when you, when, you know, when you think about it a little bit that way. I think I don't, you know, I don't want to dismiss that there's also, there's so many, just to go back to, harking back to what you said originally, you know, about like you can't be what you can't see. Like, I also think it is really important that folks can, there's also a whole social layer on top of, right? The sort of like the, the, the access and the psychology safety and the, and the sort of economic things with the outdoors as well, right? And um, and there's so often people accusing folks of being like not inclusive or not supportive in various ways. One, when often it's like, well, actually part of the, like a, a, a lot, often the, the, the lack of diversity is because you know, it is, is mirrors, I think, the economic sort of inequality, right? Rather than being some kind of like nefarious scheme where, you know, all the white bearded guys are like, no one else can climb. It's like, that's most of them is actually not what's happening. And especially, you know, I think these days in 2022, right? That's not what's happening. Most of the time it's, it's these more fundamental issues. So I don't know. I think it's maybe I'm just taking the easy way out and just pandering to economic inequality. You know, such a such a fashionable argument in 2022. But like, it's it's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, I, I I've lived it too. I remember like when I first moved to San Francisco. You know, I I had a sense that I should. I was like, I should probably at least get vaguely competent at skiing because it seems like that would be useful for doing like big mountain stuff. And I, I mean, the, it took me years to get there. I had to learn how to drive at a bit of Ford, you know, a weekend to drive three hours up to Tahoe. Like, it's sort of the closest place to really ski in San Francisco. And I had to like buy or rent skis. And like, I mean, it was, it was just, a, I remember I was like, wow, this is like, I just can't afford it. Like the idea of just spending $200 on, on, a, on a cabin rental and $100 on skis and $100 on lift tickets. I was like, I can't spend four or $500 for a weekend just for fun. Like that's, I only make like $2,000 a month. Like this is just not, this was completely out of my reach. Right. Um, you know, and then I sort of, you know, I was lucky to get better jobs and be better paid and be able to afford it, you know, eventually, but it's like, that's not everyone's story. Right. So I think that's, and that wasn't because I was Asian or gay or whatever. It was just, I literally just couldn't afford it <laughs> and no one wasn't going to pay for me. So no skiing for me, you know, but. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you're totally right, but also not to, well, I was going to say not to push down the obvious um, mm-hmm. corridor, but I'm going to. Uh, but that is, you know, you had the, the whatever it is, the confidence or the inspiration or the insight to go and do it. But actually, you know, you say it's not because you were Asian or gay, but those things are such huge barriers. I mean, I'm talking to mm-hmm. a few people about this in the moment, uh, the mm-hmm. moment in the UK because we're doing a film project, but there are not many, I can't name many openly gay people who are regularly going into the outdoors 
you know, as in from, from a kind of social media or industry perspective. And, you know, you go to any ski resort and every, I was going to say 99 in 100, but 999 in 1,000 people are white. Yeah, I think, I, think the, I think the simplest thing I say to that is, like, like, visibility really matters. I think being able to see other people like you really matters. And I think for some, for some kinds of diversity, like skin color, like, you can, it, you know, you can literally see in the photograph. And that's, that's very, that's in some ways, that, that kind of representation is more straightforward. I think, you know, there, there's, that's a, that's a, you know, a visible difference, right? But there are also invisible differences, and I think sexuality is one of them, where it's like, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of gay climbers, right? Um, but how would you ever know, you know? And, um, you know, especially because I think being gay, it's, it's um, you're used to, you know, being gay, you're, you're trained essentially at a young age by society, not consciously, right? To, to, to be able to hide it, to learn how to hide it, right? Um, and, to, and so if you're in a new place, if you're in a new group of people, maybe some, a group of climbers you first met, or, you know, in a situation where you kind of a little bit, it's a little bit scary because you're going climbing, like you're, you're going to be like, well, I'm going to do the easy, I'm going to take the easy way out, which is I'm just going to like hide this part of me that I, so I don't have to deal with like, oh God, what if, you know, someone doesn't accept it or someone doesn't, you know, doesn't, um, you know, someone doesn't, uh, they, they say something weird or they just say, it just makes things a little awkward. It's like, I, I'll just, I just, let's just deal with this like scary climbing thing and this meeting new people thing. I'll just not deal with the, you know, and that's, that's a, not everyone does that, you know, but that's, that's, I've done that most of my life. That's, that's the easy way out. So I think that, that's why it's like so important. I mean, I, I, to maybe to like appropriate, you know, like an 80s, like queer rights slogan, it's like silence is death, right? You got to be out there. You got to let people know you're there. And that's, that's the process I'm going for myself. I think I've spent most of my life being like, oh, I'll just kind of figure out how to blend in. And, um, you know, maybe, how you know, at the gay bar with my gay friends, I can be like a little bit more open. But then if you spend your whole life, I think, trying to hide and sort of, sort of box in a part of yourself, even when you're in a place where it's perfectly safe, it's still, you suddenly find that you don't really know. You're like, wait, what is it like for me to be not boxed in? I don't even know what a full expression of this would look like, right? Um, that's the reason why gay pride is so loud and, you know, sort of, uh, so, so, so loud and, and sort of, over the top it's because it's like well you know we're gonna make a space where it's comfortable we're gonna like figure out what it means for ourselves to be gay by being as loud and as gay as possible because that's the only way to figure it out because you spend your whole life being really really quiet about it um yeah i completely forgot the original question i'm sorry but that's where totally. i totally <laughs> no 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 that's fantastic and but i yeah. and i kind of just well, you know, we'll draw this to a close because we've been talking for an hour, mm-hmm. but I'm really keen to kind of break the fourth wall a little bit, actually, and just ask you mm-hmm. almost as a like a confession in my own way. Like if you were straight and if you were American, we'd have probably spent mm-hmm. the last hour talking about adventures and rock climbing. Right. And I'm Raids really and conscious of that at the moment. And... Like, I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Where have you been? What have you done? Tell me the stories, you know, but we didn't, right. you know, we've spoken about that a little bit, but, and, and I'm always fascinated by people's heritage, particularly whether they're, right. whether they're from Montana or Iceland or wherever, but mm-hmm. we haven't, you know, we've talked a lot about visibility, accessibility, inclusivity. Does it annoy you that you end up naturally being a representative of those people and those groups? Um, not, not really, I guess. I think, 
I mean, I find these things, I find these things very interesting, I guess, from an anthropological way of anything else, right? Like, it's, it's always interesting to just think through, like, well, why are things difficult? Like, why is diversity it's difficult in the outdoors? Like, why don't we have it naturally? Like, what is really holding back, you know, this or that? Um, I love, I, I sort of love thinking and talking to these things. So I, I don't know. Um, I guess for me, like, I'm never going to be a, you know, a super strong climber or, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe I, I'll get somewhere where I got to put up a first ascent on some peak or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't, I think when I was younger, I tried to be like, maybe I can get really strong or maybe I can do this really cool thing and I can be on the cover of a, of a magazine too. But, you know, I'm also 33, right? Which is not old by any means, but from like a, from, from a climbing perspective, like I sometimes almost feel like I'm over the hill, right? And I just really enjoyed getting on top of things and being like, oh, I wonder what it looks like up here. I really enjoyed the physicality of climbing. And um, and also I really enjoyed teaching climbing. Like it's really, it's really fun to see someone else do something that they an hour ago thought they couldn't do, right? And um, so that's mostly what I'm focused on. So I guess I don't, yeah, I don't really need to, I mean, it's fun to talk about adventures and fun stories and crazy places, you know, one's been and all that stuff. But I, I don't, I don't need to spray about, about that, right? You know, it's like, I feel like more and more these days I climb for myself, right? I climb for myself and I climb for, for I, climb, I climb as a way to sort of grow and nurture my relationship with myself, my relationship with the rock and the environment, the mountains and all that stuff. And in a way that's a, not, not to maybe draw too sharp of a point on it, but in, it's in a way, it's, it's a little bit like a religion, right? It's, it's a personal, almost a private relationship. And so I don't, I'm happy to talk about it, but I'm happy to talk about all the places I've been or whatever, but I don't need to. But, you know, these anthropological things, for lack of a better word, these things are really interesting to talk about, I think. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, good. Well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, in an effort to reassure you as well, I think um, for those who don't know, there's the PLA door, which is, you know, it's one of the most prestigious mountaineering awards in the world. I guarantee mm-hmm. you the average age of a PLA door winner is over 33. <laughs> that is true. I, that is true, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I've always thought it's silly because gold is a so, very um, you're very soft metal to make a piton out of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I don't know what steel is in French, but it should be. It doesn't sound <laughs> exactly. as good though, does it? <laughs> exactly. Um, cool. Well, um, I always finish these podcasts by asking the same two questions. Um, cool. So I will now, and um, please just interpret them however you wish. Um, what scares you? Hmm. Uh, I'm going to think about that one for a second. It's almost a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think right now I think the, I'm a little bit scared by my ability to, I think, manage or read or understand risk. I think that's, you know, that just a little bit, you know, going climbing tomorrow, you know, and, and I'm a little bit like, oh, like nothing's changed except a friend died in the mountains. So I'm a little bit like, oh God, like, do I? Like, is this? safe like do is that is it okay just to wrap off that one cord is this rock gonna fall from you or not like you know it, it shakes your confidence a little bit right your ability to sort of read and understand these things and so so that's i think yeah i think that that's is a little scary to me right now but you know i'm gonna try go out there tomorrow try and feel it out and see and if it doesn't feel right then just don't climb and that's fine you know then you just go for a hike with your gear as as always <laughs> um so but yeah i think that that's that's what's a little has me a little on edge, I think, right now. I don't think that's a cop-out answer at all. That's a great <laughs> answer. Um, what 
what brings you hope? Um, this might be a lot more of a cop answer, but actually I am, I'm really encouraged by I think seeing all the support behind sort of think having more diversity in climbing. I mean, it just, I think it just, it just feels like a breath of fresh air, right? It feels really, it feels, it just feels, it just feels really nice. That's like, oh, there are spaces for folks that are, you know, uh, different races, different sexualities, different, different differences. It's, it's, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, you spent, I've spent so much time just not really expecting that. I think, you know, having come from a different country and just, just sort of being, I'm so used to being different in these ways, right? Being just from a little bit weird that I, I'm like, okay, cool. That, that's, that's, that's how it's always going to feel. And it's been, it's been very, it's been lovely really to just, to, to feel a little bit more a sense of belonging, you know, sort of in the climbing world than I really have before. So that's been, yeah, that's, that's been very encouraging. Well, that's a lovely way to end it, I guess. So thank you very much. That's been amazing. Totally, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Great conversation. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date, you can follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Ola Omori and Alex Hall. If you want to email us, then you can get in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. And please do leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. They make a huge difference to us being able to bring the podcast to a wider audience.